All right, Acts chapter 2. Would someone go ahead and read for us verses 1 through 4? Acts 2, 1 to 4. Who's got it? Stan. Stanley. Go ahead. Yeah. Yes, isn't it amazing, the technology? I've worked ahead on those. It's taken me a few months. I do two or three a week when I have time. And they're all already done and scheduled to launch out. Isn't that crazy? Go ahead. Oh, chapter 2. 2, 1 to 4. No, it's okay. You were giving us the the context for chapter (laughs) 2. There we go. Okay. um, The question that's on the board there is, Was this the baptism with the Holy Spirit? And we looked at this uh, last week and answered this question. So I'm going to go through this whole slide as an overview today. Uh, Back in Acts 1, the disciples were told by Jesus that they will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from that point. Well, here we are not many days later in Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit comes. And this certainly appears to be the baptism with the Spirit. And as a sign that they had received the Holy Spirit, as a sign that He had come, they began to speak in other languages. I do think it's best to, when you see that word tongues in there to just read languages. That's what that word means. Okay, it has to do with actual languages. In our day, we kind of have uh, a bad connotation with tongues when we think of Religious Christians speaking in tongues. What, what do you normally think of when you? Yeah, yeah. Rabba daba, shabba daba, shabba daba daba. Okay, that's uh, <laughs> that is not what they were doing. There's just no evidence that that's what they were doing at all. They were speaking in known languages, and we we understand that that word tongue is another name for language. Like when we say every tribe, tongue, and nation, we're using it there as you know a. a Language. We're not using it there as Babel, not every tribe, Babel, and nation. Joe and then Stan. Oh, you did? <laughs> what did I say? Oh, okay. <laughs> Stan. Yes. Yes. Well, among the 12, not so much. I mean, among the 12, there was probably some variance. I'm sure there were two, three languages among them. Okay? But what's interesting is this is Pentecost. This was a major feast in Israel where you had a bunch of Israelites or Jews from all over would come back to Jerusalem for this feast. And when you think of that setting, there are a whole bunch of languages represented there. And so as they go out from this moment in Acts chapter 2 and go out and begin to preach, the Holy Spirit is gifting them in a special way to communicate with those people who have those languages that they would speak those languages and those people would be able to understand the message. So that's what's going on in in Acts chapter 2 with the tongue stuff. We asked the question last week, is this normative? The answer is no. Uh, There are some Christians who believe it is normative, the position of this church. My position is that this is not normative. There was a special 
uh, era of miraculous sign gifts being poured out in the early church, and those miraculous sign gifts do not appear to continue uh, into our current day. And uh, we could talk through all that sometime. I'm sure we will get to that uh, at some point. And we talked through this, too, that this was a sign of the Spirit for that time, and it was possibly a sign of judgment as well. We talked through that. Okay, but it was a sign that the Holy Spirit was there. How did they know that the Holy Spirit had come? Well, here they are, miraculously speaking, in languages they did not previously know. And through that, the gospel message is going out and Jesus Christ is being exalted in the hearts of people who speak all these different languages. So it's an explosion of the gospel through all these different languages. And it's only able to happen because of this miraculous occurrence brought about by the Holy Spirit. Thoughts or questions on that event in Acts 2 and the Holy Spirit's role in that? Good? Okay, well, let's go to chapter 10, same book, Acts chapter 10, to see this sort of thing happen again. Acts chapter 10, toward the end of the chapter, verse 44, you have Peter here with Cornelius and friends. Cornelius' family and friends, they are not Jews, they are not speaking Hebrew. You have the gospel going to these Gentiles. Peter preaches the gospel to Gentiles, which, again, I mean, just to refresh you, because I'm sure you've heard this before, that's a very big deal. Jesus, of course, was the Jewish Messiah, and as converts who were Jewish, converts to Christ... Their view was he's our Messiah King. He has come for his people, the Jews. There's going to be this amazing kingdom that's going to happen. Well, what they find out along the way is that there's going to be a delay in this. Jesus didn't come to establish a physical earthly kingdom in his first coming, did he? That's not what happened. And so Peter's learning on the fly. We get to like go along with Peter and the other disciples here that the gospel is actually going to the Gentiles. And there's going to be Gentiles and Jews together as one new man. Jesus is building his church, which is, you know, interesting that it took Peter so long to get this because uh, he was right there when Jesus says, you know, what what does Peter say? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Peter, Simon Barjona, blessed are you, Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, and on this rock I will build my church. This introduction of a new thing, the church. And so Peter now, as he's learning what's happening, he's an instrument in God's hand as the church is being built. So he goes to these Gentiles, he preaches the gospel, and let's see what happens next. 44 to 48, who'd read that for us? Acts 10, 44 to 48, Jen, go ahead. All right. What an amazing event. Here you have not only the baptism with the Spirit. should not say of. I can't believe I did that. I need to go back and edit all those. Because the the Holy Spirit, the reason why I care about that, the Holy Spirit doesn't have His own baptism apart from Father and Son. Uh, That's why I think the words are important. It's not the Spirit's baptism. It's baptism with the Spirit. Okay. Uh, It's... Maybe just semantics to you, but it matters to me. All right. Is this the baptism with the Spirit? Yes, it is. 
Is this normative? Well, no, it's the same kind of thing as in Acts chapter 2, so I'm going to take the same position there uh, in 10 as I did in 2. But what we, can, what we can gather from this, it was clear that the Gentiles had actually been regenerated by the Holy Spirit because they did what the Jews did in Acts 2. So, uh, as I was saying, you have coupled here the baptism with the Spirit with baptism or immersion in water. So, you have the gift of the Holy Spirit being poured out. You see that in 45. That's the language used in verse 45. The Spirit is poured out, uh, kind of like water language, liquid kind of language, poured out. So, that's baptism with the Spirit. But then you have in uh, verse 47, they're saying... Um, surely no one can refuse the water. So now we're talking about a different baptism for these to be immersed or baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And so they were then baptized in water. They were first immersed in the Holy Spirit. Then they were immersed in water. You See the two baptisms there at play in the same context, the same situation. But one certainly came before the other, didn't it? You'll uh, run into some people from time to time who will say, well, no, you have to be baptized in water in order to be baptized with the Spirit. You'll hear that from Latter-day Saints. You'll hear that from some Pentecostals. You'll hear that from some Church of Christ people, that through baptism, that's how you get access to the Holy Spirit. And they'll go to a place like Acts chapter 19, which we can look at sometime. We'll probably get there when we are in soteriology. Acts chapter 19, where Paul is at Ephesus. And uh, you have these people who um, he's talking to and asking if they've received the Holy Spirit and what baptism they've received. And all they've known is John's baptism. And so they're baptized there in water and they receive the Holy Spirit. Well, here you have the opposite thing happening, don't you? They've received the Holy Spirit, they're baptized with the Spirit, and then they get baptized in water. So which one is it? Well, that's an interesting conversation to have. But uh, I would, would hold to that a person does not get to uh, the Holy Spirit through the waters of immersion. The person receives the Holy Spirit upon faith in Jesus Christ. That is what you see as normative throughout the New Testament. What you have in Acts 19 it's a very unique circumstance. It's unique to Acts 19, and it does still need to be explained. You can't just write it off. It has to be studied and explained. But it's certainly not the, uh, the normal MO, so to speak, of how this all works as the New Testament explains it. Okay? But hopefully you see the connection here with Acts 2 and Acts chapter 10, where they receive the Holy Spirit, they speak with other tongues, and now we get the added step of they're baptized in water. Evelyn. Right, yeah, um, that is an interesting uh, question. She's, she's saying, okay, so if someone doesn't have the Holy Spirit, the person has to be baptized in water to get the Holy Spirit, what would even cause a person to want to be baptized in water? Hmm, that's a tough one, right? It would have to be like religious pressure or just, hey, here are your steps uh, to get to God, and here's one of the steps to achieve just like a religious system. It, it, it does bring about and introduce other issues, for sure. Dean? Yeah. Right. Yeah, part of acclim acclimating, 
to another group. Yeah. Other thoughts or questions? Yes, very, very true. Not, uh, not all immersions in water are holy immersions in water. That's for sure. Yeah. Lanny? Hmm. Well, um, one of the things to keep in mind, of course, and this doesn't solve the problem, but it is a part of getting to a solution, is that in the book of Acts, you have this transition going on. A transition began when Jesus came proclaiming the kingdom. That, that begins a transition from Old Testament Judaism to the New Covenant and the New Testament church. So you have, it's not like one night everybody went to sleep and they were in the Old Testament, and then the next day they woke up and they're on the New Testament. That's just not how that worked, right? So you have John the Baptist being sent forth as a forerunner even. So even before Jesus comes proclaiming, repent, the kingdom of, of heaven is at hand. Even before that, you've got John the Baptist baptizing people. What's that about? And then you get to Acts 19, and you find out that these people had, all, I mean, all the way into the New Testament, all the way to Acts 19, they had only heard of John's baptism. So they had only heard step one of the transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament. They'd only heard of step one. And so you have this, uh, this issue where they've been baptized, but it wasn't the baptism that Jesus inaugurated after his resurrection. Make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So um, what Paul does there, he's on one of his missionary journeys, is he has this conversation with them that leads them to salvation and Christian baptism. Now, why... Why do you have the Holy Spirit talk in there seemingly out of order from what we see in the rest of the New Testament? That's where it gets a little more difficult. But I think if you can accept initially, this is a transitionary time, you can expect something not normative for us today to happen. It, because they didn't wake up, like I said, they didn't just wake up one day and everything's like it is today. You can look at that with uh, leadership in the local church. When, when they were initially planting churches and establishing churches, why didn't all of them have a functioning group of elders and deacons? I mean, you, you look at the churches in Galatia, and apparently they did get elders early on, but when they were first planted, Paul went through on his first missionary journey, he went through Galatia and he planted churches, then he came back around and he established elders in every one of them. Okay, Did they get deacons or not? I don't know. What about the, the churches after that? Did they all get elders and deacons? I don't know. Because you only see deacons mentioned in 1 Timothy 3 and in uh, Philippians 1.1. And so it kind of, kind of took time for everything to come into full maturity here with the church. And I think that's a big part of what's going on in Acts 19. But uh, what I'll have to do, let me make a note, otherwise I'll forget. What I'll do is I'll make a note here and say in our soteriology section, when we study the order of salvation, we will look specifically at Acts 19, so I can give a full answer to that um, about why that's going on in, in that chapter. Okay, note has been made. I don't know if we have any biblical data that would indicate that. It would have to be... Uh, human reasoning deduction outside of what the text give us, gives us. So I'd be hesitant to say that. 
Okay, well, let's uh, keep going in Acts, just the next chapter, still on this idea of in Acts chapter 2, Holy Spirit comes, they speak in tongues. Acts chapter 10, Holy Spirit comes, they speak in tongues. Now you get Acts chapter 11, and Peter is connecting these dots. Acts 11, 15 to 18, Peter is recounting what happened in the chapter previous. Who can read those verses for us? 15 to 18 of chapter 11. Who's got it? Mike? All right, so here's what you're seeing Peter conclude. He's thinking of uh, Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 10. What has happened? There was preaching of the gospel. Now in Acts chapter 2, these were disciples of Jesus who had heard, uh, not only heard, but were eyewitnesses to the work of Jesus Christ. So they heard of the work of Jesus Christ, and they believed, and there was the, Holy, the coming of the Holy Spirit uh, causing them to be permanently indwelt from that moment forward. And tongues was the sign that they had received the Holy Spirit. With the uh, Gentiles in Acts chapter 10, you have the preaching of the gospel, which is the means that God uses. Okay? Uh, why do we go out and preach the gospel? Uh, because God uses the preaching of the gospel to reach human hearts. Through their conversion, they received the Holy Spirit. So receiving the Holy Spirit is a sign of uh, their conversion. And the speaking in tongues was an outward sign that they had received the Holy Spirit, that they had truly been converted. So what Peter's doing is connecting the dots and saying, look, there's order to this, and it matches what we did. And uh, he didn't say Acts chapter 2, but we can say in Acts chapter 2, Peter says, this is what happened to us at Pentecost, is the Holy Spirit came and we spoke in tongues. It's the same sign. The same sign happened to the Gentiles as happened to us. And so these things are all connected. The sign of languages brought about by the Spirit was used to show the early church that the Gentiles were now able to be God's people too. So not only was God just showing, hey, these people are saved because they spoke in languages. He's particularly teaching the Jews that the Gentiles can be saved and they will be one with you in this new work of God, the church. Well, um, that, now that's another interesting one because you have at the end of John's gospel, Jesus breathing and saying on them and saying, receive the Holy Spirit. You got to think, well, what on earth is going on there? Because again, we're, we're thinking of how did we get from the Old Testament to the New? It wasn't overnight. Old Testament era, the Holy Spirit wasn't there permanently with God's people. What was the Holy Spirit doing in the Old Testament? What was he doing? Yeah. Coming and going, right? He would, he would show up, and then he would also leave. We have the, the Old Testament narrative explaining that. But then what happens in the New Testament? He comes, and he stays. He stays. Jesus taught on this in John 14 through 16 that we covered for a couple of weeks, that he's going to send us a helper, and he's going to be with you forever. That was Jesus' teaching. So then when you get to the end of John's gospel, and Jesus breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit, was that the coming of the Holy Spirit? Was that the baptism with the Spirit? Well, no, it wasn't. It, was, it had to be something else. Because you have in the book of Acts, now this is after the ascension of Christ, you have the Holy Spirit coming. So where were they properly converted, as we can think of the disciples being converted? What do you guys think? What kind of answer would you give to that? Thinking of the Holy Spirit causing them to be born again to a living hope, where would that be? 
Mm. Yeah, well, but he does also believe in that moment, as Jesus affirms, saying, seeing you have believed. Right. <clears throat> and uh, and this actually gets into some really interesting stuff. I'm, putting, I'm pushing everything off until soteriology, which is going to make soteriology awful for me. But uh, <clears throat> if you can remember these things, I'm hope, maybe I'm hoping you'll just forget. But uh, um, as you were just saying, Dean, think through this. Were, were they totally depraved in the Old Testament? So what's the only way a totally depraved person can be converted? Yeah, but how can, how can a totally depraved person have faith? Okay, but their relationship with the Holy Spirit was different then, right? But the Holy Spirit was, had to be the one who washed and regenerated and caused them to be born again, right? But were they really born again if they didn't have the Holy Spirit permanently? It gets pretty hairy when you start thinking through this stuff. Okay, there's a distinction between Old and New Testament, yet some of the things are the same. And so how do you figure, how do you explain that? And we're never going to be able to uh, get all of our ducks in a row on that. You kind of got to accept the mystery on that. Yeah, they, they weren't led by the Spirit. They weren't filled with the Spirit. They didn't have the gifts of the Spirit. There wasn't the fruit of the Spirit, as we see in the New Testament. Those are major differences, and all tie back to the born-again experience. Yet they had to be born again if they were to have faith. How was Abraham justified by faith if he was totally depraved? Well, the Holy Spirit had to be involved, didn't he? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Well, there were some, of course, who would offer those sacrifices not in faith, and those sacrifices wouldn't count. But there were some, of course, who did. How can you, yeah, how can you offer a sacrifice by faith? Well, the Holy Spirit had to be involved. But then you get to the New Testament, and Jesus says, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. So in what way is he sent now that's different from the old? And that gets tricky to explain. Lanny. Yeah. Yeah. We have, to, and that's, I think maybe the, the secret is actually that last thing you said is contentment with leaving the Bible where the Bible is. Because <laughs> we, we look at things and we say, that's a loose end. That's a loose end. I, I got to tie these things together. And that's not really our job, is it? Our job is just to recognize what God has said and believe it. God knows. And, and this is, uh, you know, so I, something to keep in mind. As you read through, especially the Gospels, and, but uh, really Acts too, as you read through the first five books of the New Testament, this is a transitionary time. Again, that you can't just say that and that solves all your problems. Okay, I don't want that to be the case because you have these doctrinal problems you've got to work through. But it's important to remember that because what some people will do is they'll go back to, say, the book of Acts and try to make those experiences normative for us today. But I don't think that's, uh, that's the case because you have some unique things happening in the book of Acts because of what God is doing in his program. Because he's moving his people from the Old Testament into the New. Can you imagine being born in like 10 B.C.? or 20 B.C., you're being raised, and you're Jewish, you're being raised Jewish, and you're there when Jesus comes, and 
He dies and you're in your 50s when Jesus resurrects and ascends into heaven. Your life is going through a very weird transition at that point if you become a believer in Jesus. And you're trying to figure out, okay, so what do we do with the temple? What do we do with the law? What do we do with the Old Testament? What do we do with this? What do we do with that? And you're trying to figure all this stuff out. And that's part what we're seeing in the book of Acts is they're trying to figure this stuff out. And so to go to the book of Acts and to say this is what every believer should experience I think is disingenuine because that context pretty much covers every verse in the book of Acts, that the context of transition. Okay. How did we get there? What are we talking about? <laughs> Acts, el- <coughs> Acts 11. Okay, so through this transitionary time, God is giving the Jews a sign that the Gentiles are going to be part of the church. And that sign is tongues. So I guess, you know, the, the two thoughts are related. When someone goes and they see tongues in the book of Acts and they say, we need to make this normative in the Christian experience, it's like, well, what is that a sign for then? What, because here, clearly, it's God's using it for a specific purpose in the book of Acts. It, what specific purpose in our life today in the church is God going to use it for? Well, um, you've you got to answer that question if you want to keep practicing it. And here in the book of Acts... He was using it specifically to show the Jews that the Gentiles can receive the Holy Spirit too. By faith, being converted, they receive the Holy Spirit as well. Right? Okay, we'll go to the next passage. Oh, hey, we'll talk about more about tongues later. All right. 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is where we're headed next. The bottom of page 27. Here Paul is writing to one of those first churches in the first century, a church he planted that we've been talking about a lot for the last couple of years around here, the Corinthians. We preached through the book of 1 Corinthians. Now we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. You should know quite a bit about them. And look at what he says in verse 13 to these believers. For by one Spirit... We were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. At at salvation, each believer is baptized into the church via the Holy Spirit. Notice he says that this baptism is by the one spirit, the Holy Spirit, and it applies to all the different believers. And this is where it's important to recognize the different baptisms that the Bible talks about. Just like we looked in Acts 10 with Cornelius and his gang, they had received the Holy Spirit and were baptized with the Spirit by speaking in, or through speaking in tongues. That was an identification that they were baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they were baptized with water. Two different baptisms. So here, when you read a verse like this in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, you got to say, okay, it says baptism or baptized, is this talking about spirit baptism or is this talking about water baptism? And I think this is talking about spirit baptism. Again, it's not normative that every time someone is baptized with the Holy Spirit, he or she would speak in other languages. Again, there are, there are groups out there that will try to say so. I had a coworker once, maybe I've told you about him. When I was a new Christian working at a grocery store there in Missouri, uh, he was a, uh, uh, I can't remember which kind of Pentecostal he was, but he's Pentecostal. And uh, we would talk theological things from time to time. And he believed in the continuing 
use of tongues, but he was a Babel guy and not actual languages. And I asked him one time, if someone has received the Holy Spirit, will he, without fail, every time, speak in tongues? And he said, yes. And I said, I've never spoken in tongues. Do you believe I've received the Holy Spirit? And he's a super sweet, sweet guy. And he said, no. He was just honest and said, no. Okay, well, that's a problem, right? I would venture to guess the majority of us have never had an other language's miraculous experience. So if you're going to take the view that that's normative, that means you don't have the Holy Spirit. And, of course, uh, he would tie it to baptism, too, that guy I was talking about. He would say it's through baptism you come out of the water speaking these other languages. That's when you receive the Holy Spirit. I just don't see that to be uh, the New Testament teaching on receiving the Holy Spirit. And here I think we do have a verse that talks about spirit baptism, and that doesn't necessarily mean it comes with tongue speaking. Now, there is certainly a case to be made that this is talking about water baptism. For the early church, uh, immersion in water was very important. It was that initial rite of being identified with Jesus Christ, and they took it, I would say, much more seriously than we do today. They're You have the uh, Ethiopian eunuch, right, in Acts chapter 8, when he was reading Isaiah 53 and says, I don't don't know what this says. Philip is there. I mean, an amazing, like, teleportation that God just, poop puts Philip there. And Philip says, well, let me explain that to you. And he walks him through the gospel. And then he gets baptized right there on the spot. And then, poop, Philip's gone. Crazy. Uh, a, A crazy moment. Well, why was he immediately baptized? The early church seemed to place a real heavy emphasis on being baptized at the moment of belief. They, for them, being in the church was synonymous with being baptized. I don't think you see in the New Testament a view that you're in the church as an unbaptized believer. So perhaps here Paul is talking about water baptism. I tend to see it not as water baptism, but we can disagree on that and still rub each other's backs, okay? Lanny. No, so you have this uh, Greek word, which is, uh, well, I, there's no point writing it out. It's the word in, okay? It's just a simple two-letter preposition. But it can be translated by, with, or in, I-N, in. So uh, the translators have to make that call every time they run into that preposition, which you can imagine sometimes That's a difficult call because by, with, and in are all very similar prepositions, right? Um, So, no, there's not a a difference. It's all from the same Greek Greek word there. Now, of is a different word completely, which is why I don't like that I put that on there earlier because that's that's never the word that the uh, uh, New Testament uses for baptism with or in or by the Spirit. It's a totally different word. Other thoughts or questions? Go. Thanks for the disclaimer. <laughs> okay. Well, who's they? All right. So that's kind of a long answer, Joe. But I'm I'm ready. You want me to give you a longer answer, or do you want me to try to sh- shorten it? All right. 
The first place we see the word church in the New Testament is Matthew 16, when Jesus said, I will build my church. So he, not only is that the first instance, but in that first instance, it is future tense. It's a, it's a thing that hasn't happened yet, but it's going to happen. From that moment forward, we see the doctrine of the church being explained through the events that happen. Uh, like in Acts chapter 8, or sorry, not Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 2, that we were just looking at, they received the Holy Spirit. And I don't think you see the word church there, but we recognize that as this is like the start of the new thing, the church that Jesus was talking about. He's going to build his church. And here he is promising that they will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And there they are being baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Yes, I'm, I'm getting to it. I'm getting to it. Remember, this is the short version. <clears throat> And so in, uh, throughout the book of Acts, you see the church then being built. You, you're kind of witnessing it happening rather than God giving us a strict definition of what the church is. You get to go along for the ride and see it organically being developed. And uh, then you get to, of course, the letters of Paul, and he starts using the word a lot. The church of God at Corinth, the church of God in uh, Philippi, the churches in Galatia. And you start seeing definition then where the church is a gathering of believers with leadership and church discipline and all these features that they have, that makes them a local church. Now the word in the Greek is ekklesia. It is a compound word that means called out ones. They are the called out ones. Now what makes this difficult is uh, Matthew 16 is not the first time we see the word ekklesia. The first time we see the word ekklesia is in the Greek rendering of the Hebrew Old Testament that existed before Christ. And at times, not normatively, but at times, Israel was called the ecclesia, meaning the called out ones. But then Jesus comes along and says he's going to be building this new church, because we say new because he was speaking future tense. And so that makes, that makes the New Testament church different than any use of the word before. If you ever want the long answer, let me know. Stan. Yes. And that rock is either Peter or Peter's statement that Jesus is the Son of God. But not a physical rock, correct. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, not Israel in all of its forms is not the, the called out group of people because, yeah, they did obviously turned from the Lord and suffered harsh judgment from God because of that. Yeah. But yeah, that doesn't mean they were always considered holy. Whereas the church, on the other hand, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are considered holy for the duration of your life. And together, his church is considered holy, which is why tampering with the church gets you into judgment with God. What's next? What do we have here? Now we go into sanctification after that. So here we've looked at, uh, at salvation, um, the Holy Spirit's participation in our individual salvation. So if you look at 27, just from the top to the bottom here, these passages I've brought up on page 27 indicate the Holy Spirit's activity in an individual's conversion. From Ephesians to Titus to John through the book of Acts, and in 1 Corinthians, you have the Holy Spirit being active when a person is converted to Christ in these different ways that we've talked about. Of course, today we focused a lot on 
the baptism in the Holy Spirit. But remember back in Ephesians 1, he's also the one who comes and seals us. In Titus, he washes and regenerates us. In uh, John chapter 3, he's causing us to be born again. Like the wind comes and goes and people don't know where the wind uh, is coming from or where it's going. So the Holy Spirit comes and he causes a person to be born again. It's the will of God uh, in action, the Holy Spirit's activity. All right. So he is very active in a person's salvation and these are the verses that indicate that. Next, we're going to talk about in a person's sanctification, but I'll pause and see if there are any questions before we get into that new subtopic here. Good, good. Hey, let's see how far we make it here. John Frame says, everybody who is converted, everyone who is a Christian, is baptized in the Spirit. There are not two groups in the church, one baptized in the Spirit and the other not. If that were true, it would be a basis for disunity rather than, as Paul says, a basis for unity. I think this might be his commentary on the verse we just looked at, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For all of us who are in Christ, we've been baptized by one Spirit. There are some out there, you can find people out there who teach anything, can't you? There are some out there who will teach that not all of the believers in the church have been baptized in the Spirit. Yeah, it's just not, that's just not what the New Testament teaches, okay? Our baptism in the Spirit is a basis for unity. All who are in Christ have been baptized by one Spirit, right? So if you're in Christ, you've been baptized by one Spirit. If you've been baptized by the Spirit, you're in Christ. They, they go together, okay? Wayne Grudem says, when people become Christians, the Holy Spirit does an initial cleansing work in them making a decisive break with the patterns of sin that were in their lives before. After the initial break with sin, he also produces in us growth and holiness of life. So when he says break with sin there, he's not talking about you lose all taste for sin, all desire for sin. You have complete total victory over the flesh from day one of being a Christian. That's obviously not what he's saying. He's not even teaching over the course of the years to come, you will become perfect. Okay, that's uh, a view of sanctification that's also not accurate. Uh, what he's teaching there is you now have a different relationship with sin. When the Holy Spirit comes into your life, when you're converted to Christ, your relationship with sin changes, meaning you have a distaste for sin. You no longer view it as your prized possession, but you, you hate the things from the heart that God hates. You struggle with them, just like Paul says, the things I don't want to do, I keep on doing. However, let's acknowledge the reality, you don't want to do them, and that's a good thing, right? You don't want to do them. Even though you may go on doing them, there's, in the converted person's heart, there's this struggle with sin. That's the break he's talking about. And from the moment of being converted, you enter into sanctification, which is being set apart for God being set apart as a Christian in this world, living, living for God, giving your life to Him. So let me give you a couple of big ideas here, and then if we have time, we'll look at those passages. First important to note, here's your blank at the top. Believers are permanently indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Believers are permanently indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Here are some passages for that. 
the strongest of which is probably 1 Corinthians 6, okay? But as believers, we have the promise of the uh, company of the Holy Spirit who is in us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the reason why I say this is the strongest, likely the strongest, is because it's specifically talking about individuals. Individuals have within them the Holy Spirit who will not leave them, He will not forsake them. But you have these passages uh, to consider. Romans 8, 1 Corinthians 3, 1 Corinthians 6, and 2 Timothy 1, 13-14. Maybe a good idea to to read these since they're in front of us. Would someone grab Romans 8, 9 through 11? Who can get that for us? Romans 8, 9 through 11. Thank you, Mandy. 1 Corinthians 3, 16, one of the great 316s of the Bible. 1 Corinthians 3, 16. Katrina, thank you. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. 6, 19 of 1 Corinthians, April. And then Stan, you want to get the last one there? 2 Timothy? 1, 13 to 14. Oh, yeah, uh, I got the warning today. They were going to be making tambourines there in that kid's class next to us. <laughs> All right, Romans 8, 9 through 11. Go ahead, Mandy. All right, very good. So uh, here he's talking to believers, of course, and he says, you're not in the flesh if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, signifying that if you're a true church, if you're truly Christians, you have the Spirit of God dwelling in you. And also in verse 10, you have Christ in you. Then in verse 11, the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. So we have this idea of the Holy Spirit coming to indwell believers both in the individual sense and in the corporate sense, as we gather together as a church, the Holy Spirit is among us. Uh, I have written about this on my website, critiquing that one song uh, that says, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Uh, It's such a nonsensical song when you understand the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit's already here. Why are we inviting the Holy Spirit to church? Strange. Yeah, right, yeah. Yeah, it assumes so many things. He's not here. We have the authority to tell him to come here. He's, or he's waiting for our permission. I mean, there's just so many strange things. Um, here Paul is teaching that an aspect of being Christians, the aspect, an aspect of being the church is that we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. And we see that also in 1 Corinthians 3, this idea that he indwells the corporate body, the local church, making us the temple. 1 Corinthians 3.16. Go ahead. All right, so here he is, I, I think, quite clearly talking to the local church as a whole. So it's like he was writing to Orchard Hills Bible Church. Do you not know, Orchard Hills Bible Church, that you are a temple of God and the Holy Spirit dwells in you all? That kind of sounds interesting, doesn't it? You don't need to go to a temple. You don't need to build a temple. You, together, as the body of Christ, you are a temple, a temple of God, 
and the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, when he gets to chapter 6, I think this is where he speaks more specifically to individuals. And these two concepts go together, of course. You can't have the Holy Spirit dwelling in uh, the church corporately if he's not with people personally and vice versa. The two really just blend into one another. But 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Let's hear that one. April. All right, so here he is speaking of fleeing sexual immorality, and he uses as a basis of his reasoning that your body. So here he's not talking about the body of Christ, the church body. He's talking about your individual body and the, and the activity of your body. And he says, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you. That's a, to me, that's a very strong verse. And then 2 Timothy 1, 13 and 14, Stan. All right, the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. It's through Him that we can guard the treasure that has been entrusted. That's a cool verse. I really like that verse. Okay, Lanny. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if any man destroys the temple of God... Yeah, and that temple is what he was just referencing in verse 16, right? Yeah. So if any man tampers with the church, the church who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, he is going to face the judgment of God. Actually, the destruction of God. What a strong word there. Yeah. Yes, that's it. Strong warning. Yes, sir. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, it's a great. Yeah, it's a great question. So you have um, the immediate context of Matthew 18 is Jesus talking about actually instructions for the church that he's going to build. He mentions the church in chapter 18 as he did for the first time in chapter 16. Chapter 16, he says, "I will build my church." Then when you get to 18, he says, "Okay, if any anyone among you sins." He's to be confronted personally. If he's confronted personally and doesn't repent, take two or three with you and confront him again. If he still doesn't repent, bring him before the whole church. So that's the second use of the word church by Jesus uh, in Matthew. And then at that point, if he doesn't listen to the church, he's to be treated as a tax collector and a sinner. He's to be uh, treated as an unbeliever, essentially is what that means. And then he concludes with, where two or three are gathered, I am there in the midst of them. So I do believe there's, of course, a special application to church leadership taking care of sin in the church. That's part of what church leadership is supposed to do. It's not a fun part of the job. No one signs up to be a pastor so they can kick people out of the church, okay? That's not a fun thing. But there's an aspect where that's just a part of the job, and you have the promise that Jesus is with you when that happens. So that's the immediate context. But then as you expand, even just in the book of Matthew, you get to the end of Matthew where Jesus, who is resurrected before he ascends into heaven, promises his disciples, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. So in a general sense, Jesus is present with his people uh, individually and corporately. And it is through the ministry of the Spirit that I think we most uh, feel the ministry. I, I hate to use the word feel, but we most experience perhaps the ministry of Christ For instance, the Holy Spirit assures us that we are children of God, 
And we know this because Christ is interceding on our behalf at the right hand of the Father, but the Holy Spirit is also interceding for us. They are aligned in their ministries. They're not two distinct ministries. And so through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we can experience the ministry of Jesus. And, and yet we, we know that Jesus is omnipresent. Uh, so even though he is not the one who indwells us, the Holy Spirit is the one who indwells us, Jesus still, in a general sense, is with us. And so those two ministries are not identical but they cooperate together. Okay, that's how I'd answer that. We have time for one more thought or question. We get a minute or two left. Doing good? Okay, excellent. Well, we didn't make it to uh, the end of the lesson, obviously. So next week we'll do that, and then maybe go into a review from there, and then I'll have to figure out what we're doing that week. Maybe we'll, uh, we'll play Yahtzee or something. We'll do a Yahtzee tournament or I don't know. <clears throat> See, if I say something really dumb, then we can only go up from there. I don't know. Uh, I don't know what we'll do. How about I pray one more time and then we'll uh, head out to the lobby. Father, thank you so much again for this day that you have made. And thank you for the opportunity we have not only to breathe and enjoy life, breath, and every good thing but to particularly enjoy this day, the Lord's Day, that we would be gathered together as your people with the Holy Spirit empowering us, energizing us, guiding, leading us, convicting us. Help us today to submit and yield to the Spirit that we would have open eyes and open ears to understand what it is you've said and to apply it to our lives by your power. God, thank you so much that we have the gift of each other, and we have the gift of you forever because you have given yourself to us in an amazing act of grace. Thank you so much for all that we have in Jesus' name.